Uh, but as we get into this, why don't I pray and then we'll look at God's word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as we finish off Titus, uh, that we can see that we are saved uh, into good works. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what you have to say to us through this text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Shh, we have to be quiet in here. Hands to yourselves. Put them in your pockets. Stop touching everything. Look, I know you're hungry. We're almost there. Stop your whinging. If you've ever been to uh, an art gallery or a museum with kids or you've seen families with kids, these are the sorts of things that you'd hear during your day out. Uh, The problem is that while you as the adult may be able to appreciate all the artwork you see mounted on the walls, while you may be able to appreciate the glory of whatever it is that's sculpted in front of you, children don't often have the same capacity to appreciate these things. They either don't have the patience, so they might see something in it but not really get it, Um, and in other instances they just purely don't have the capacity at all, so they get quite bored. And this leads to behaviour in kids uh, that is frequently considered unfitting for an art gallery. And the solution then from most parents often comes in the form of constant reminders. Constant reminders from mum and dad about how they ought to act, Reminders of how they should be in these environments. No running, no touching. You know, remember, others are trying to enjoy their day too, so keep it down. Now, much like children in an art gallery, uh, for these newer Christians living on the island of Crete here in Titus, or for any Christians living anywhere really, we're so prone to forgetting God's mercy and grace that we're prone to forgetting where it has brought us. We need constant reminders as to where we are and who we are in Jesus, and therefore how we ought to act as a result of this. So as we come to the end of Titus, Titus chapter 3, this short little epistle, uh, we come across what I think are a series of reminders uh, for us as Christians, a series of reminders about how you ought to live in light of the gospel, a series of things which help you remember that you are saved by grace, so now go and live accordingly. Now, as we look to the beginning of the book, we see in chapter 1, verse 5, Titus's job in Crete, uh, Paul tells him to put in order what was left unfinished. And so in this last chapter, we get a glimpse at what uh, some some of this unfinished business looks like for Titus. Now, I've broken this down into four key reminders, and this will provide the wind for the sails of the main idea that we are saved by grace, now live accordingly. And these reminders are up there on the screen. First, remember to be ready for every good work. Two, remember who you used to be. Three, remember the gospel. And four, remember God's people. So we're going to begin looking at the first one. Point one, remember to be ready for every good work. So from verse 1 we read, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. Now, it's not always easy to be subject to rulers and authorities, and over the last couple of years we've probably been reminded of this fact over and over again. It's not always easy to be subject to our rulers and authorities, especially 
when we consider their authority to be difficult or oppressive or they're asking things that we might consider unreasonable given the circumstances. But here in Titus 3, we're told that we are to be subject to our rulers and authorities, to those who have authority over our lives, including those who govern us. And so as Christians, I think this begs the obvious question, when, if ever, do we draw the line? Right? Is there ever a moment where we should willfully disobey our governing authorities? Now, this is a very broad and complex thing to consider. I'm going to give you a couple of pointers, but I don't want to dig in too deep, except to say this. The Bible never commands us, it never commands obedience to a human authority to the point of sin against God. You get that? No human authority has the right to tell us to sin against God. Now, they might sometimes tell you to do things which you consider unpleasant. They might tell you to do things that you consider unreasonable. But Paul tells us that we need to be subject to our rulers and authorities, to obey them. But more than this, he tells us to be ready to do whatever is good. You see, if you're going down this path, if you were sitting there as a Christian looking at um, vax mandates and masks and all other things like that, if you're going down this path going, what is the minimum compliance that we should do as Christians, then I think you've missed the point of this first part of Titus. Because in verse 1, he's saying we're not just to be subject to our rulers and authorities, but we're to be ready to do whatever is good. And he gives a list here. He says to slander no one, to be peaceable, to be considerate and always to be gentle towards everyone. In other words, the text isn't just saying, don't rebel. It's actually appealing for Christians to live a life of active obedience, to be ready to do whatever is good. That is to slander no one, where to be peaceable, considerate, always gentle. So peaceable, uh, in this it, it literally means no fighting, to avoid fighting, to be considerate, always gentle towards everyone. So you may be in a position where you can be more domineering, where you can kind of lord it over people, but as Christians, we're to willingly hold this back in a spirit of gentleness. And this not just towards other Christians, but the text says towards everyone. So that's the first reminder. Remember to be ready for every good work. The second is this. Read with me from verse 3. Sorry, the second is remember who you used to be. And from verse 3 we read, At one time you too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So Paul's next reminder is to constantly recall who we once were. Remembering that, that we too were foolish, that we too were disobedient. Now this is a particularly good one to remember, uh, especially when we have to deal with quote-unquote difficult people. You see, if you cast your minds back to chapter 1, we see uh, Paul's assessment of the Cretans here. They're always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Uh, these aren't the nicest of people. They're probably not the most comfortable of people to hang around. They're not the most easy people to deal with, but if we recall our own failings, if we remember our own depravity were it not for God's mercy and grace, 
I think it'll help us deal with those who we might think are a bit more difficult to handle, those who we might consider people that require a bit more effort or a bit more involved. Now, this verse, uh, what we have here, it's Paul's assessment of the pre-Christian life. And we know this because the very next verse says, but when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Right? So what we have on the screen is the pre-Christian life. And so for some of us sitting here reading this list, we might think, well, I don't remember a time when I was not without Jesus, when I was kind of like this. Many of you may have been fortunate enough to have been born and raised in the Christian home and haven't experienced the the full-fledged hitting of worldliness in your life. And I think it's worth thanking God for that. But even so, if this is you, I think it's worth asking yourself as you look at this list, have I ever been foolish? Have I ever been disobedient or enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures and so on? Because the answer, I think, if we're honest to ourselves, and let me speak for myself here, is of course I have. And so as we look at this list from the vantage point of being born and raised in a Christian home, still knowing that we have struggles with these things that are virtues of the non-Christian life, then it really should raise our empathy for those that have been absolutely saturated in this stuff and then have become Christians. Those whose lives perhaps still have a few rough edges around them It should give us sympathy to love them even more, knowing our own struggles, given the vantage points that we've had. But if we can remember this, remember who we used to be or who we would be without Jesus, this naturally brings us to the third thing to remember. That is, remember the gospel. So Paul, after telling us to remember who we used to be, Uh, turns our attention to the gospel itself, the great salvation of God. And it's here that we read in verse 4 onwards these words. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously, through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Now that might sound like an earful, uh, and it kind of is. Uh, There's a lot of complicated things in there. What is this washing of rebirth? What's that talking about? So let me break this down really simply for us. This whole section here, in a nutshell, these verses, the point of them is to highlight that God reached out to us long before we ever reached out to him. That our salvation and our good works have nothing to do with any changes or improvements that we've made in our own lives, but rather are entirely because of God's work in our lives. So look at how much Paul stresses this. I'm going to highlight a few of the things that are on the screen. Verse 4, right? it is the kindness of God that appears. Verse 5, he saved us. Verse 5 again, his mercy is what saved us. Verse 5 again, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by who? By the Holy Spirit, that is God, in whom, verse 6, he poured out on us generously, through whom? Through Jesus Christ, that's God again in action. Verse 7, he justified us, verse 7 again, by his mercy. 
grace. Over and over and over again, God is mentioned as the initiator and the driver behind our salvation. Over and over and over again in these verses. And this is kind of important because it sets the scene then for verse 8, in which we read, This is a trustworthy saying, as in everything is just said. And I want you to stress these things, right? Stress all the things about your salvation being entirely the work of God. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to what? To devote themselves to doing what is good. Now, I think sometimes as Christians, we're so desperate not to put the cart before the horse. We're so desperate to avoid this. We don't want to promote a goods works righteousness to the extent that we sometimes throw the baby out with the bathwater here. We emphasize salvation by grace alone through faith alone, which is entirely correct, by the way. I don't want anyone to come up to me afterwards and say, wow, you denied this all of a sudden. No, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But I think sometimes perhaps we emphasize this to the point to to the expense of what God's grace inevitably should lead us to in the Christian life. That is a life that should want to honour and glorify God as we carefully devote ourselves to doing what is good. Now, Paul's not preaching works righteousness here, not at all, but what he's doing is putting forth the obvious implication of our salvation. You know how, I think in movies and in many other parts, people instinctively say, Jesus is our Lord and Saviour. Right? It kind of rolls off the tongue. He's my Lord and Saviour, man, like stuff like that. I think this makes the point for us, right? We have Jesus who is our Saviour, which means he's saved us. Makes sense? But he's also our Lord. And so when we say Jesus is our Lord, what we're saying is he is our King, which means having been saved, we should want to honour and live for this king. We should want to obey this king. Another way to think of it is that, that our, our faith, for example, isn't merely theoretical, right? This isn't just a brain exercise. It's something that should shape and mould us into a people who are eager to devote ourselves to doing what is good. Everything leads us to that point. And Paul concludes this thought by saying these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So there's a sense in which, as we are saved, as we lean to do good works in honour of the king, that this actually builds communities. Right? This is profitable for everyone. But before closing out this letter, uh, Paul slips in one more warning. While those who are gospel-motivated are careful to devote themselves to doing what is good, and Paul considers this profitable, Uh, Paul says that there is a type of behaviour which is unprofitable and useless. If you look with me in verse 9, he says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. There's a contrast going on here. So there are some behaviours that are profitable, some that are unprofitable. The problem is that on the surface, when you read this list of things that are unprofitable, it seems like this would squash much of the discussions that we have in our Bible studies. It would kind of kill the 
the passionate theological discussions that we seem to have and that some of us enjoy so much. So the question is, is that what's going on? Are we allowed as Christians to disagree on things or to have heated theological debates? Well, to answer this, I think we need to look carefully at the text because it all hinges around the goal of these discussions and the types of people who are constantly found at the centre of them. So in verse 10, we see Paul addressing a type of person who is addicted to these sorts of disputes. Someone who wants to push the envelope simply because it stirs up division. They're the type of person who gravitates to the middle of these heated discussions or is always conveniently found at the epicentre of them. There's often an appetite that needs to continually be fed on division and discord. This person is literally called a divisive person in verse 10, and that's because that's their nature. And Paul gives very specific instructions with how to deal with people like this. He says in verse 10, Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. See, the idea behind this warning here, to warn them once, warn them twice, it's to admonish them, right? We're, we're meant to counsel them into stopping any inappropriate behaviour. Uh, there's hope, or two hopes to be exact, of repentance in this case. We're not to instantly burn people at the stake for being heretics. We're not to burn people at the stake for stoking division. We're not to instantly cast them out, but rather we're to give two chances to repent in this text in the hopes that they will eventually come around. The goal here is repentance and correction so that we can welcome them in. But after two warnings, they if they insist on continuing to divide, continuing to create factions within the church or beyond, then they're to be put out of the church. Titus and the elders are to have nothing to do with them. Why? Because in verse 11 he says, you may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. They're warped which can mean like mentally or morally twisted, like they can't really see the light of day, they don't really know what's right and wrong, the compass is spinning all directions. And they're self-condemned because even though they might not see their sin or their divisiveness, uh, in reality they, their conscience might actually not be aware that this is sin, right, because their minds are warped, but they're self-condemned because by this stage the church itself would have warned and admonished this person multiple times. Warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. In other words, they're aware of their sin, even if they don't believe they're sinning, because they've been told many times. And Titus is not to waste time with these people, but instead he's to get on with the business of living a gospel-shaped life for the benefit of everyone. Now, believe it or not, with this cheery note, with this really uplifting section of Titus, this is where Paul finishes the body of the letter. It's almost like you, know, you type an angry email and you're going to put like the, the nice bread of the sandwich on the other end to send it to kind of manipulate people in getting your way. He hits send a bit too early and boom, out it goes. But thankfully, he does squeeze in a final greeting. So even though the body of the letter is finished, there is a signing off, 
which kind of gathers things back and kind of draws our attention back to the main point this evening. And that's where we're going to finish up. Point four, remember God's people. This is the last of our reminders. So we've been reminded to be ready for every good work. We've been reminded as to who we used to be. We've been told to remember the gospel. And now as Paul closes the letter, he name drops a few people with an implied reminder to remember God's people. Now for Titus to be reminded of all of these people, this would have come as a great source of encouragement, especially on the island of Crete, which would have been a very difficult place to minister. If you look at me at verse 12, uh, Paul says he's sending Artemis and Tychicus to him and tells Titus in turn to do his best to join Paul back at Nicopolis. Now, when you read the verse, it's hard to know exactly what's going on here. Perhaps uh, he's replacing Titus, he's sending some people to kind of tag team with him to get him out of there, to give him some kind of respite. But what's encouraging to know is that God's people love and serve one another, even if it means doing this kind of tag teaming of doing the heavy lifting. In verse 13, Paul mentions Zenos the lawyer and Apollos as well. Uh, these perhaps are the people that carried this very letter with them. We, we don't really know, but it's the best guess we've got. Um, regardless, Paul tells Timothy uh, to do everything he can to help these two when they arrive, to see that they have everything they need when they're on the island of Crete. And this here, this is a call to practical service. This is, this is where the rubber hits the road. They're saved by grace. Now Paul's going, use that in a way to help love and serve people. People who go out of their way to tirelessly serve in the church. Now here at KPC, I'm very encouraged uh, to see this quite a lot. Um, One pull of our road, if you know our property, it is enormous. And we have people that dedicate half a day of their time to go out and mow that thing very regularly. We get people that help volunteer with uh, the printing of the bulletins. Uh, We have people to make meals for one another, especially when we've been in in COVID isolation. Uh, Here in Night Church, people make meals this last term on a regular basis so we could all share them after church. Practical service is something that we're called to do as God's people, and it's amazing to see this in action here at KPC. Uh, I'm very, very encouraged by this. So we've got Artemis, we've got Tychicus, we've got Zenos and Apollos. The final thing I want to draw your attention to uh, is the last verse of the letter. As Paul writes, everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now, while this letter, it's addressed to Titus back in chapter one, this final remark, grace be with you all, shows us that this was intended to be read by much more than just Titus. This was to be an open letter to the churches on Crete. And the inclusion from everyone on Paul's side as well, everyone with him greets them, uh, it kind of highlights the importance of remembering all of God's people. Everyone is in this together, playing on the same team. And so while our faith certainly has personal and individual elements to it, you've heard the old saying that that God has no grandchildren. What, What this means is that that your faith needs to be your faith. Your parents' saving faith isn't going to save you, right? There is a call to individual accountability here. But there is also something profoundly corporate about the people of God as well. There's something corporate 
that enables us to sharpen one another. It helps us to help one another. It reminds us to remind one another of the gospel. You see, in many ways, we're all like children in the art gallery. We're so prone to forgetting God's mercy and grace that we need daily reminders of this stuff. We need constant reminders of of who we are and where God has placed us and therefore how we ought to act. And this is Paul's reminder in Titus 3. Remember this. Remember this. You are saved by grace. Now live accordingly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that We so often uh, acknowledge that our knowledge of you simply is stuck in our heads. That we admit that we fail to honour you through the things that we do and the things that we say. Lord, I pray this evening that you'd be at work in our lives, helping us by your spirit to live a life that is consistent with the salvation you have already freely and fully granted us in Jesus by grace through faith. Help us to have such a confidence in your saving power that it directs our hands and feet to love and serve you and to serve those around us as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.